couple of things real quickly. There is no one in here and no one's jumping out. That's good, right? Secondly, no one is getting in here that I know of. All right. That's not part of the plan. And so we're not looking for volunteers for people to crawl in today. All right. So here's the reason the coffin is here and will be here for a few weeks. I know that's exciting. Some of you are like, it creeps me out. Get it out of here. All right. Here's the reason it's here. I was reading this week about a band of brave souls of missionaries from about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, and they were called one-way missionaries. The reason they were called one-way missionaries is because they would receive a call. They felt like they were supposed to go somewhere and mission, do mission work, and they would buy one-way tickets without a return trip. They would pack their belongings in a coffin. And then they get on a boat and wave goodbye to family and friends. Now, here's the reason they packed their stuff in a coffin is because they weren't coming back. They were all in. Amen. And what they were saying is that this is over. In fact, this was you have to remember, we, we live in a world and we think about our own time and our own age. This was before Skype. This was before emails. This was before they could phone each other, you know, just, hey, I'll call you next week. This was I am not going to be in touch with these people ever again. I will never hear my brother, my mother, my father's voice again. And they would take everything they have and they would pack it into a coffin and that was their luggage. One of those guys was a guy named A.W. Milne and he uh, was called to this place in the South Pacific to a, a group of people called the New Hebrides. And in the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, he was called to a particular tribe that were headhunters. And going in, he knew that every single missionary that had ever gone to this group of people had been martyred, killed. And so he got his belongings, he put it in a coffin, he nailed it shut, he put it on the boat, he said goodbye to family and friends, he had his one-way ticket to the New Hebrides, and he ventured out into this life that God had called him to. He got there and he started to minister to him and an amazing thing happened. They did not kill him. In fact, he ministered to them for 35 years. And at the end of his time, when he died, they buried him in a coffin in the middle of their town. And they wrote on a tombstone in their original language, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Because of one man's commitment to do what God had called him to do. You see, somewhere we've kind of gotten in this kind of mindset and mode that we've started believing that God wants us to be safe and secure. And he's called us to safe places to do easy things with our lives. And we get our feelings hurt if things don't go exactly right, if they don't go like we want them to. Instead of realizing that God has called us to live a dangerous life. You even hear this in our cliches. You know, we hear Christian cliches all the time. Like when God closes a door, he opens a window. You know, sometimes in my life, I've discovered the door is locked and there is no window. Amen. Or this one, this is this is one you've probably heard. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Do you know that sometimes I find when I'm in the center of God's will is exactly when 
all hell breaks loose. And I mean that literally. Amen. I mean, it happens. I was thinking about that this week. You know, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I don't know if you've been following the story of Pastor Saeed, who's uh, in prison over in Iraq. Been in prison for almost two years, and he is there only because he told some people about Jesus. Well, it came out this week from his wife, who's like in Boise, Idaho. Well, he's in prison in Iraq. That apparently, for some reason, the guards had decided to teach him a lesson recently and beat him to the point that he had severe injuries, internal bleeding, difficulty surviving. And instead of giving him medical care, they shackled him to his bed and gave him no attention. Pastor Saeed, in the center of God's will. I don't know if you saw the story this week about North Korea, but apparently in North Korea, there are 33 people who became Christians, accepted Jesus Christ. When a Baptist minister from South Korea came and told them about Jesus, they accepted Christ and they were scheduled for execution in the coming days. You see, in America, we get this idea that it's safe and secure because for the most part, following Christ is not something that costs us anything. And yet scripture reminds us over and over again to follow Christ is going to cost us everything. It demands our lives. You see, this idea that that we're called to have safety and security is a lie straight from Satan himself. I mean, think about the Bible. Joseph in the center of God's will. Where did that land him? In prison. That was after he was sold into slavery, right? So it's not just Joseph, though. Our kids downstairs are talking about three friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three friends right in the center of God's will. Where do they end up? In a furnace, right? Now they come out of it, but that's still not a very fun experience, all right? You think about the New Testament. The the first guy killed for his faith is, is Stephen, and he's standing there doing what God has called him to do, and they kill him. Or Paul, who wrote that he had been beaten, he had been shipwrecked, he had been out on the open sea, he had been taken to the point of death on a couple of occasions, all because he was in the center of God's will. You see, Jesus did not die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. And what happened with Paul is those places weren't scary or difficult or problematic until Paul got there and started talking about Jesus. The ultimate example is Jesus himself, right? Was Jesus in the center of God's will? Yeah, yeah. if not, we have other theological issues to discuss. All right? And where did, that end, where did Jesus end up? On the cross. Right in the center of God's will. You see, the will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a plan that is daring. And the complete surrender of your life to Jesus is not something that ought to be radical. It ought to be normal for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's time to quit living life as if the goal is to safely make it to the end. It is time to understand that God has called us to a radical life of one-way missionary endeavors. It is time to go all in. It's time to pack our coffins and get ready to live for the Lord. Lord, no matter what that means. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 
Over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at people in Scripture that went all in and that God called them and they jumped. They went no matter what happened. And here's what I want you to understand. It was not difficult for me to find people in the Bible who God demanded everything from. It was difficult for me to find people in the Bible where God said, could you just give me a little bit? Could you just give me a portion? Could you just give me a sliver? Hey, in your leftover time, when, when you're done with everything else, can you give me a little bit of time? When, when you've spent all your money, could you just drop a couple of things in? That's not the way God works. First Samuel chapter 14 is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And, and it starts in verse 2 is where we're going to start. And it says this, Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. Now, here's what I want you to understand, first of all. Who is Saul? Who is Saul? It's the Old Testament, right? So it's not Saul that became Paul. This is Saul the king. Now, he's the first king of Israel. And why did they choose him as king? Because he was tall. He was strong. He was muscular. I mean, he was... Put together. I mean, kind of like your pastor. Amen? Okay, maybe not. But he, people looked at him and said, he looks like a king. I mean, he's got the height. I mean, he looks, he's muscular. I mean, he's one of those guys that when he put on a uniform, he looked impressive. And people thought, and he made the all-uniform team. This guy's all, that's who we want as our king. What was the problem with Saul? Well, he didn't really follow the Lord. When you're... King of a country where the Lord is their God, that, that kind of is a requirement. And, and what we have here, it, it seems like a kind of an inconspicuous verse, not a big deal. But, but here in this first phrase, we have an understanding of the character of Saul. Saul is waiting under the pomegranate tree. Now, God had told Saul, get your guys Go take the Philistines out. I'm going to give you the victory. You go fight it. And Saul is sitting there waiting for something to happen, just thinking maybe, maybe, maybe God will show up. God's already told him what to do. He doesn't have to wait. There are a lot of people that wait on signs from the Lord to do what God has already told us to do. Saul was one of those guys. Afraid. Well, what if, what if, what if I make a mistake? What, what if I don't do it exactly right? I'm paralyzed by fear. Jonathan had left. Now, who's Jonathan? We got Saul. Who's Jonathan? That's his son, right? Jonathan is Saul's son. Now, not only is he Saul's son, do we know that from Scripture? What else do we know about Jonathan? David's friend, right? He's his best friend. I mean, Jonathan is a guy that gets caught in the middle. When Saul starts chasing David, Jonathan is the one that protects David on occasion. He is protecting his friend over his dad. So here they are. Saul's under the pomegranate tree trying to make a decision, can't make a decision, doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to live, doesn't know how to act. And Jonathan, it says, has left. It goes on to say this. Now, Jonathan is looking out and he knows that they've called him to the Philistine garrison. And it tells us that there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that John and Jonathan intended to cross. I want you to get this picture in your mind, all right? I want you to get like a valley with cliffs on both sides and you're walking through the middle and on the end of it is another hill and at that end is a Philistine garrison. Now, how many troops were in a Philistine garrison? 
I don't know either. But a lot. More than two. Right? And Jonathan is walking and he says he's walking towards the Philistines. And this is what he says. He said uh, there was, um, it goes on. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on. Let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. I love you and call them Philistines. He just says they're the enemies of God. They're uncircumcised men. They don't deserve here. God's called us to destroy them. Let's go, my armor bearer. Let's go across and perhaps the Lord will help us. One of my favorite verses. Go back for a minute to that one. Now, I want you to th- imagine this scene for a moment. Jonathan sneaks away from camp. The armor bearer has to go with him because he's got the armor. And he gets out there and he goes, all right, here's our plan. You ready? We're going to walk over there. We're going to attack that Philistine garrison. The armor bearer's like, who's going to attack it? Oh, me and you. Two of us. We're going to attack the Philistine garrison. And listen, listen, maybe God will show up. That doesn't sound like, you know, an epic battle speech. What's your favorite epic battle speech? Like, you know, watching a movie. What's your favorite movie where they get to go to battle? What's the speech you like? Braveheart? Anybody out there like Braveheart? There you go. Right? What's that? Gladiator. That's a good one. Russell Crowe. Right? Getting ready to go. What's that? Patton. You're going old school, Scott. Right? Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi. Woo! Getting that leg fixed back. Last night, we were actually watching one of those moments. Um, we were watching, Eli's been begging for a long time to watch the Lord of the Rings movies. He's got the stuff and he's read The Hobbit and that kind of stuff. So we watched the Lord of the Rings movies and it only took us like eight years. All right. Well, last night we finished the Return of the King. And there's a scene at the end of Return of the King when they're getting ready to attack and, and, and they see the gates open, you know. And Aragorn looks at him and he runs up and down the side and he's now king of them. And he says this, that great speech where he says, there may be a day when the strength of men will fail and we will run without courage in the midst of the fight. But today will not be that day. And you're like, yeah, let's go. You know, well, at least that's what I was doing. All right. Now, imagine in those movies, if they went down the line and go, hey, guys, we just uh, we're just going to go over there and fight and maybe something good will happen. All right. Pat and George Patton, guys, we're, we're invading, we're taking back, and eh, it could go either way. That's what Jonathan does here, right? Maybe. But this is the reason he's confident. Look at the next part of this verse, it says. And if the Lord shows up, nothing can keep the Lord from saving. He has ultimate confidence in his God. Now, here's what that means for me and you. We need to learn to accept uncertainty in our lives. If we're going to be the kind of people, like, like the missionaries that packed up a coffin to sail across the sea to a land they did not know, leaving everything they knew behind because God had called them. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they were fine with uncertainty because they knew the God they served. And there are some of you in this room that if you are honest with yourself and you do what God has called you to do, it is going to mean stepping out on faith and it's going to mean career changes or it's going to mean family changes or it's going to mean entertainment changes or it's going to mean financial changes. And you are thinking, but I don't know what will happen if I do that. And here's what I can tell you. I don't either. And it's okay to be uncertain because we serve a certain God. 
And most of the times, people don't act because they're afraid God won't show up, when instead we ought to act hoping that He does. I love Jonathan saying, hey, listen, God, I know what we're supposed to do. Now, here's something you don't even, we haven't even talked about. But in the verse before this chapter even begins, it tells us that the Philistines had forbidden any blacksmiths from helping the Israelites. So there were two swords in the entire Israelite community. One was with Saul. One was with Jonathan. Now, we see that and we think, woo, only two swords. Saul, I mean, Saul sees it as only two swords. We can't do it. It's an impossible task. Jonathan sees it as, I got a half the swords in all of Israel with me. Right? There's a difference in how we see it. If you're waiting till every question you have is answered before you step out in faith to do what God has called you to do, you will never step out in faith to do what God has called you to do. Listen, four years ago, when we did this capital campaign and then the year after, after we got the plans together, we brought it before the church. I, I, I in no way could guarantee what I thought exactly was going to happen. But here's what I knew. God was calling us to do it and to not do it would have been a step backwards and away from what the Lord intended. And I don't want to be a pastor that leads people backwards. And I don't want to be an individual that doesn't go where God calls us to go. Even though I don't understand how it's all going to work out in the end. And I'm okay with that. Because God does. There may be some decisions in your life this week, this month, this year, that you've got to make. And you're not certain how God's going to show up. But you know it's from the Lord. My only advice to you is to go. Go until you get a no. Go. Look what happens in this story. I love this. He talks to the armor bearer. And I want to tell you, there are lots of crazy verses in this story. This is the craziest verse of all to me. If you're the armor bearer and you give the armor to Jonathan, what does that leave you? No armor. Nothing. If there are two swords in the whole land and Jonathan's got one and Saul's got one, when Jonathan's using the sword, what do you got? Jack squats, what you got? Now you got other weapons, maybe, but no swords. And I love this. The armor bearer looks at Jonathan, the unnamed armor bearer, the guy we don't know his name. He's a footnote in history, but he makes one of the most amazing statements ever said. Do what is right in your heart. You choose. I'm right here with you, whatever you decide. And he's talking about friendship, loyalty, servanthood. You decide to go, go, and I'll be right next to you. What's he talking about going to do? Fight them. Go up. Fight them. Armor bear says, go ahead. And then Jonathan reveals the rest of the plan, which is probably good he didn't reveal the rest of the plan to the armor bear before he told the armor bear they were going. Because I'll just tell you right off the bat, this quite possibly may be the worst military strategy plan in the history of military strategy. Jonathan said, all right, here we go. We're going to cross over to the men and we're going to let them see us. Now, let me ask you a question. If you've got two against hundreds, what is your ultimate goal? To hide, right? Guerrilla warfare, hide in those cracks and crevices. Don't let them see us. But Jonathan says, hey, man, I got this awesome plan. Here's what we're going to do. I'm glad you're with me. We're going to walk out there and say, here we are. It's kind of like playing hide and seek with a three-year-old. 
You ever play hide and seek with a three-year-old? Ready or not, here I come. I'm here, Daddy. Well, kind of we're in the game. Thank you. Appreciate that. Apparently, some of you have played recently with three-year-olds. They can't stand it. They have to let you know. Jonathan says, we're going to walk out there, and we're just going to say, here we are. Now, here's what I love. It goes on to say this. Here's the rest of the plan. If they say, wait until we reach you. Oh, go, go back. Go back. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. And there's this sense in the original that he says, and we'll know this isn't the right thing to do. If they say we're coming down. Now, now remember, I want you to, to visualize where they are. They're in a valley. This is the plan. They're going into the valley. They're going to yell up at the garrison. We're here. And if the garrison says we're coming down to you, he thinks, oh, that's not good. Now, let me ask you a question real quickly. Okay, military strategy. I know we got. Is it better to have the higher ground or the lower ground? You want the high ground, right? Why? Because when they got to come up to you, you just pick them off, right? This is what Jonathan says. Go, goes on to the next thing. But if they say, you come on up, then we'll go up because then we'll know the Lord has given them to us. That will be our sign. This is crazy. Right? Here's the reason. This is rocks and crevices. Okay? There's no steps. They're, the Philistines aren't going to throw them a rope and go, here, I'll help you out. It's not... That kind of congenial warfare. If they make it to the top, they may not make it to the top. Anybody ever gone rock climbing? Yeah, me neither. But I heard it's really hard, all right? I go to an open face, not a one that you've done. He's, they're going to climb up that rock, and when they get to the top exhausted, they're going to take on hundreds of men. It goes on to say this. I love this. They let themselves be seen. That's the moment. The plan's full effect. I love it when a plan comes together. Here it is. We're here. <laughs> Philistines, we're down here. And the Philistines looked down and said, Woo, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they were hiding. My guess is they thought there were more than two coming. Then this is what the Philistine says. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan his armor bearer and said, Come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. And Jonathan says, Woo! Follow me. The Lord has handed them over to us. It's over. He's like, did you hear that? They called us up. It is over. We have won. The Lord has showed up. And then he gives the rest of the description, which I absolutely love. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. I, this is, I, I, love, I wish somebody would make a movie of this. You know, for some reason, the princess bride goes in my head a little bit. You know, he's climbing up and you hear the clanking of the armor behind him as he's going up. Right. Jonathan. Look at this. He gets up on top. Jonathan cut them down. And his armor bearer followed and finished them off. This is like a Rambo like stuff. Right. Like two guys. And it tells us how many they finished off. It goes on to tell us that the next layer was. In the first assault, the first one, they had to take a little break probably, but in the first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre field. Now, we're not going to put the rest of this on the screen, but I'll just tell you what happens. The Philistines get a little scared. And Saul looks up from his pomegranate tree and goes, wow, something's happening up there. All the Philistines are running away. Jonathan and his armor bearer just do what God has called him to do. Here's kind of the second point of the whole sermon. 
and then we're done. You've got to learn to live before you die. Jonathan looks at the situation and basically says, listen, I don't know. I'm going to accept the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen. And he says to the armor bearer, this is what we're going to do. And the armor bearer says, absolutely, let's go. And Jonathan says, we can stay here and not do what God has called us to do. And we can die safe and secure and sound. Or we can live as God called us to live and make a difference in the history of the world. And the truth is, there comes a point in all of our lives when we ask ourselves the question, is this all that there is? Or am I made for something more? And part of the reason we never experience the fullness of what God intends is because we're scared to death we're going to do something wrong instead of leaping forward into the plans God has and doing what He would ask even in the uncertainty of the moment. And for some of you, it's time to pack your coffin and go. And I don't mean you go to the mission field. I just mean you live. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. I heard the story. Um, the guy that wrote a book on this passage of Scripture that I read several years ago now actually led a Bible study on it while I was here. A guy named Erwin McManus wrote a whole, Bible, a whole book on this particular story. I heard him one day telling about uh, one night with his son who had just gotten back from summer church camp. And as he got him laid in bed and got ready to go, his son's like eight, nine years old. And he goes to turn the light off and his son said, could you just leave the light on for a minute? And his son had never been one of those, leave the light on or worried about that kind of stuff. And he was like, well, what's going on? He said, well, I was at camp and we were around the campfire and we were talking about this stuff. And he said, the guy just kept talking about demons and how, 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 how much they don't want us to do what God wants us to do. And how they're God's enemies and that they're real and they're fighting. He said, Dad, is all that stuff true? And Erwin McManus said, everything in me wanted that safe, blanket, warm Christianity of, no, everything's fine, you just live for Jesus, you'll be fine, everything will be okay. He said, but I could not let it happen. And I said to him, yes, son, it's all true. He said, Dad, can you pray that I'll be safe? And I love McManus's response. He says, son, I will not pray for you to be safe, but I will pray for you to be dangerous. So that when they encounter you, they will know you belong to Jesus. And the son looked up at him and said, Dad, could you pray that I'm really, really dangerous, please? <laughs> My prayer is that as a church, we would be a really, really dangerous church. And that's going to mean you and me accepting the uncertainty and living before we die. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some things that it may mean to pack your coffin and what may need to go in there and how you may need to live. And this is going to be around with us for a little bit. Because I wanted to just remind us consistently that we're called to live for the Lord. In fact, the verse that we're going to use throughout this whole time to remind us of that is when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, If anyone is to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And if anybody wants to gain life, he must lose it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Listen, I know that it's scary going all in with Jesus and doing whatever he asks. But it's the only acceptable way to follow him. Let's pray together.